When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, everybody, and welcome into a new edition of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Podcast Network and on Patriots Press Pass. I'm Evan Lazar. Joined, as always, by Alex Barth. And we were just talking about this, Alex. Pretty busy day for May 17th in the middle of the yeah. offseason and the offseason voluntary workout program going on at Gillette Stadium. Meanwhile, last two days, we had the assistant coaches talking. Uh, we also had Vince Wilfork just about an hour ago, uh, the newest member of the Patriots Hall of Fame, inducted 2022 here uh we spoke to him just a few minutes ago so a lot going on for a tuesday in the middle of the off season we're going to start with big vince we're going to get into the coaching staff and some of the takeaways we had from the last couple of days and then we will do a deep dive into the depth chart on the defensive side of the ball for the patriots just like we did last week with the offense but starting with vince wilfork who as i mentioned was just announced as the inductee for the 2022 Patriots Hall of Fame fan vote. Vince Wilfork doesn't really need much of an introduction, I don't think, especially with this generation of Patriots fans that typically listen to our show, Alex. I think everybody right. understands what he brought to the table, what he meant to the Patriots. But what was your initial reaction, your thoughts on Vince Wilfork going into the Patriots Hall of Fame over Logan Makins and Mike Vrabel, who are two really worthy candidates as well? So this was not an easy decision by any means. Yeah, no, both both certainly deserving, but I thought Vince was the guy's the sixth player to go in in his first year of eligibility. I I think he said it best. He's he thinks he is. I would argue he is the greatest nose tackle in the history of the yeah. game. When you talked about all that he could do along the defensive line, the athleticism you brought to the position, he really was somewhat of a unicorn. I think too. You talk about you know the how the different generations might view him. My my favorite Vince Wilfork factoid, I guess you would call it, is he's one of only two players. Players. There's some coaches and other people who have this, but one of only two players with the ring from both, let's call it Dynasty 1.0 and Dynasty 2.0, right? He was a rookie yeah. in 2004 when they beat the Eagles. And then 10 years later, he's on that team that beats the Seahawks. And if you think about it, that really is a fascinating place to be in history, Right. Uh, you know, him and Tom Brady are the only two that can claim that. And and when you talk about what that last Super Bowl meant in the early 2000s and then the, what that, that first Super Bowl meant in the mid-2010s um, to be on both those teams, I, I actually got to ask him about it. I've been get, throwing that trivia question out there for years, and it was cool to get to ask him about it today. And I thought he gave a very thoughtful answer. First off, you know, crediting Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft and the the program, the sustainability they they brought to the program for all those years, but also that he was able to take lessons he learned as a rookie in 04 and from that core. And he mentioned Teddy Bruschi, 
Ty Law, Richard Seymour, some other names that are escaping me, but he mentioned those guys. And then, you know, 10 years later, he's able to teach those lessons and pass those lessons on to guys like Devin McCourty and Dante Hightower. And uh, who else did he say? I think he said uh, Gerard Mayo, Julian Edelman, right? And you look at where the Patriots kind of are now and in this era of turnover now where the core is changing and the, the, the base composition of the team is changing. Who are, who are those guys, right? If they're going to make another run at this thing, I think to bring it to the modern conversation around the team, I, I think we maybe underestimate what Will Fork was as a leader and how he brought that from the first dynasty in. And now, you know, who, who can we look at that was on that 2018 team, young players on the 2018 team that can maybe that are still here and can continue to pass that advice on. So um, obviously yeah. Vince Wilfork, very deserving. He should get his gold jacket as well, but uh, good to see him get this step and he should, it should be a fun induction ceremony. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Great speech. I'm sure coming from big Vince. I think the one thing you were kind of hinting at it there that stood out to me from what he said today was how easy it was for players to come into the Patriots system and basically just jump on the moving train right? They, they were such a well-oiled machine in the 10, 11 years that Vince Wilfork was with the Patriots. And he mentioned that they were just so good at when assimilating new guys, right? Bringing in new talent and having them plug and play those guys into spots where other guys might've left, you know, they passed that torch, so to speak, from Bruski to Mayo or from, you know, McGinnis and Vrabel at outside linebacker to the next generation. And Vince kind of mentioned that just from a culture standpoint, it was so easy for them to break in these new new players and, and pass those torches off and keep the train rolling. And I don't think, I think that Bill Belichick and the Patriots organization and Tom Brady get a ton of credit for the football success, for the X's and O's, the schematics, the Belichick mastery and all those types of things. But Belichick, the, the culture builder, I'm not sure if we talk about that enough, right? Because I, I think a right. lot of people look at his culture and think it's not fun. They they uh, channel their Lane Johnson and they talk about, you know, how it's so militaristic and how they don't get to talk in the media. They don't have to be let them be themselves. I actually think that a lot of players that you talk to and we're lucky enough to be able to talk to guys like Vince Wilfork or last year Richard Seymour, or, uh, whoever gets inducted into the Patriots Hall of Fame always does some sort of media. And I, I think the culture that they had in that locker room was really second to none. And, and that was why we used to talk about it. Like, Oh, well, they'll just draft some guy in, in the, in the sixth round in the seventh round and they'll put him in for Ty law and they won't skip a beat. Well, in reality, they didn't skip a beat in a lot of instances because of that culture and because of the, the winning culture and just how easy it was for people to pass that torch and pick things up and kind of just get on the train. And I thought that was really interesting. He also made a very good case for being the best nose tackle to ever play. I mean, I don't think anybody could have made a better case than he made for himself, probably. And that little speech that he gave about right. playing in different alignments, zero to five technique, you know, somebody that didn't just play straight up over the nose or as a one technique in the shade and the a gap all the time. This is somebody that the Patriots did move around the defensive line. They were flexible with him. They did hunt matchups for him in certain situations. He could rush the passer. He could stay on the field in passing situations. I think his all around 
versatility and ability to play in all three downs might separate him from some of the other true nose tackles like he was talking about, true two-gapping nose tackles like a Ted Washington before him, right, on the Patriots or someone like that who was really just there to play on first and second down. Uh, Vince was an effective player for multiple alignments on multiple downs and and really a, a true professional in every sense of the word no matter where they line him up on the defensive line and a very well-deserved honor it should get into the pro football hall of fame in canton here soon as well i think that richard seymour getting in is a good indication that vince might have a really good chance and probably will get in eventually just because richard seymour didn't traditionally fill up the stat sheet either right he wasn't somebody that had 150 career sacks or something crazy like that either so i think that the hall of fame voters understand the value in the patriot system and what vince wilfork what richard seymour uh, what some of those guys on the defensive line brought to the table so i actually do think vince has a pretty good chance of getting the gold jacket as well i already got the red jacket but uh in a couple years i think the gold jacket's coming too yeah i mean that's what seymour did right and it's just going to take us pushing and in in pushing this narrative that it's beyond the stats and it's not the fantasy football hall of fame It'll take longer than it should, but I agree with you. I think he'll get there eventually. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, let's turn the page now to the current team and talk about what we heard from the last two days of assistant coaches for the Patriots. I think the the number one thing, and I, there are a couple of other takeaways that I had that weren't uh, about the titles of the coaching staff and the offensive staff in particular, but this is the first time that we heard from Joe Judge and from Matt Patricia since they rejoined the organization. There's a pretty interesting couple of days with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia I think my one take on it is though, is that I, I also, I, I believe them when I say that titles, when they say titles don't really matter to them and don't really matter in general, I'm not as caught up on the titles. I'm not as caught up in who's the offensive play caller. I know that that's a big talking point as well. I actually don't think any of that really matters. I, I think a lot of these guys have experience calling plays in some way, shape or form, and they'll figure that out. The bigger concern that I have on offense, at least defense, it's pretty much chalk. They're pretty much the same coaches that they were last year anyways. Offensively, I think that you're in agreement with this, Alex. It's, it's more about big picture-wise in terms of development, of player development, and schematic development, and creativity, and having that football acumen, all those juices to be able to adapt and get this scheme to where it needs to be. Because quite frankly – and I get it, Cam's a, di- a different style of quarterback, and that was kind of a one-year thing, and then Max a rookie and all these types of things, and there's all these caveats. But their offense last year, and really since 2018, 2019, even the end of Brady's career, it, got, it was going stale. It, it's a stale offense. It doesn't really look like the offenses that you see 
some of the other powerhouses and even the NFL or especially in college football running. So my bigger concern is not about titles. It's not about the play caller. My bigger concern is do they have the right people in place to bring this offense along and develop the players like Mac Jones and then go ahead and also update and bring this scheme to the 21st century, right? Because the comparison that I used when they lost to uh, Buffalo in the wild card round was like, I used to talk to my 96 year old uncle on his flip phone, right? He's calling me on a flip phone. I got my iPhone 13. We're both talking on the phone, but one of us has got a lot more power than the other right in our hand. That's how I kind of felt like with Buffalo. And, and I just, that's my concern with their coaching staff moving forward is do they have the chops? Do they have the brain power for lack of a better term to develop Mac Jones, bring along this scheme and bring the whole Patriots offense into football in 2022 and stop playing football like it was 10, 15 years ago. That's a bigger concern to me than titles or OC or play caller or whatever it is. What is your feeling on all of that though? Yeah, I'm not worried so much stylistically and we know they're making some changes. They got rid of the fullback. I, I, I still think your cell phone analogy is imperfect because you're talking to him. He's talking to you. Like you're having the conversation. What you can do with the phone after is different, but on the phone call, the, the both phones are functioning. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. And I don't necessarily think that they need to be this total new agey offense to succeed. I don't, I think they can still at the right. Uh, was it, I think it was Jire. A lot of coaches say it. It's Jimmy's and Joe's, not X's and O's, right? If you have the talent out there, I think you can find a way to make it work. You, you build around that. Not every scheme is going to be the same. They don't have to be the Buffalo Bills. They don't have to be the San Francisco 49ers. They don't have to be the Kansas City Chiefs. If they allow players to play to their strengths, they can make an offense that works if they have the talent, right? And that, to me, has been the bigger issue the last couple of years. It's not that their scheme is outdated. It's that they have they, they bring in these players, Nikhil Harry, Jonu Smith, and then they just don't have them play to their strengths. The biggest well, thing I think is they're not having them play to their strengths, though, to push back, because I think they're not having them play to their strengths because those guys are not used to playing in a scheme like this, right? You go from college. I think this is a big thing for Tyquan Thornton, too. Sure. That Baylor, that Baylor offense is nothing like what he's going to run in the, the Patriots. And I think in the chat, yeah, like dial up internet versus Wi-Fi, right? Or yeah, okay, a test versus the Model T, right? Like we're still all on the internet, but which one's more efficient? Which one's faster? Which one's scoring more points? I also would say when you start talking about the trickle up theory into the from the college game to the pro game, my biggest concern is, is that these receivers that they're drafting like Tyquan Thornton, like Nikhil Harry are at a disadvantage coming to New England because the scheme is so different from what they're asking them to do in college that they're not really allowed to be themselves in the pros and they're not playing to their strengths in the pros. And you mentioned like, you know, adaptations and things like that. I would also just say that it, taking away all the big picture stuff, do you trust Matt Patricia and Joe Judge to use Jonu Smith better than Josh McDaniels did or to use Tyquan Thornton and develop Tyquan Thornton and know how to use his particular skill set or whatever the case may be? I, that, that's it's To me, it's creativity, so, yeah. it's, right, more than it is about titles. So that's So that's kind of where I was going with it. You know, yeah. I think it's there's no, for better or worse, the offense is going to be what it's going to be, right? I, I, it's not that they brought in somebody complete from completely outside who's going to overhaul this thing. And it, brother, you don't, 
I wouldn't consider the Bengals offense like super new agey, right? I it's it's pretty in the terms Bengals of the, play the hit. They they, right, they play exactly. the hit. They take they take things from the Shanahan tree. They take things from uh, the West Coast tree with Andy Reid, and they kind of put it all together. They have some stuff in there from 2019 LSU, you know, and they kind of take all the best things from all the the it schemes right now and put it all into one and give it to Joe Burrow. Right. And so that's kind of where I'm at with the Patriots. Again, I don't need them to overhaul the whole thing. It's just, can you kind of break, can you take your traditional concepts and adapt them to more, you, you mentioned that they, you know, like to do LSU stuff at, at Cincinnati. And I've been saying right. this, can you just add an Alabama twist to what the Patriots traditionally do? Can you essentially turn that fullback into a speed slide, right? Things like that. Um, you know, some of the more horrors that, you know, the way you scheme things up horizontally, can you scheme them vertically? Things like that, right? I again, I don't think they, I don't. People wanted a definitive offensive coordinator because they want to see the offense overhauled. I don't believe that that's, that's necessary. Happening. I don't think it can stay the same, but yeah. I, I, I don't think that there needs to be a massive change in their core beliefs. I think it's just adapting and modernizing those core beliefs instead of changing them all together. So. To go back to the first part of your question, like, can Matt Patricia and Joe Judge do that? I think, I, I think they can in that, and they, and they both talked about this today. They are total football junkies. I think they can yeah. watch what these other teams are doing, understand it, look at the talent they have in front of them, and implement it. Will they is the million-dollar question, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. Did the last season... Is, is what happened last season enough to kind of push things to that next level when it, yeah. So again, yeah. so all that being said, I'm not worried about who the offense coordinator is because I don't think there's much of a difference between it being Joe judge or Matt Patricia or Nick Cayley, or even if Bill's yeah. calling plays, I think ultimately between all, because the offense is always going to be a collaborative effort, putting it together. Whoever calls the plays between those four, they're all similar. And by the way, Troy Brown should be in that conversation too. I think Troy Brown would make, with his background, would make a, a fascinating offensive coordinator candidate. But whoever it is between that group, I think more or less is going to kind of, the offense is going to look the same. The biggest question to me in all of this, and I said this back in February, who's the quarterback's coach? Yeah. That to me is more important coordinator. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing with this organization right now is Mac Jones' development in that year two jump. This is such a crucial training offseason training camp for him. And I don't love the idea that it's a guy who just, you know, the Giants kind of singled him out as the one, Joe Judge, as the one who kind of, you know, tanked Daniel Jones. And look, I don't think Joe Judge tanked Daniel Jones. Did he help him a ton? I don't know. But right. I, I, Daniel Jones was never going to be a great quarterback, right? This is more or less what Daniel Jones was always going to be. Input from from uh, you know from from Joe Judge wasn't going to change much of that. I don't think Daniel Jones was a good prospect. But it sounds like Joe Judge is going to have other responsibilities, whether it's being the offensive play caller, whether he said he's going to work with the other offensive skill positions as well. Even last year when McDaniel's was the quarterbacks coach and the OC, right? They had Bo Hardegree in the building, who was the assistant's quarterback's coach and could kind of fill in when Josh McDaniels wasn't there. Is there going to be an assistant quarterback's coach to Joe Judge who can really be around? I'd like to see Mac have a dedicated coach. Now, maybe that's Brian Hoyer, who, for a number of reasons, as we've discussed on this show, isn't going to be a coach. He's right. For him to be in the building, he has to be on the roster. And I think it's worth a roster spot to have him. 
Maybe that's him, and maybe I'm too worried about it. And that's that's a fair comeback. That's a fair concern. But in all of this, I'm, I'm not worried as much about who's calling the plays because once we found out Bill O'Brien wasn't coming in, it's going to be what it's going to be. I don't think there's going there's much variation at this point between the options. To me, it's who's working with Mac Jones on a day-to-day basis to maximize that year two jump. That is the biggest concern for me. Joe Judge is an interesting candidate. I, I'd like to see them bring in somebody else because it sounds like Joe Judge is going to be wearing a lot of hats, but this is this is kind of what we have so far. Yeah, I, I think I'm Joe sorry, Judge is – no, no, I, I think you've made a lot of uh, good, interesting points. I, I think the biggest thing with the quarterbacks coach is like Judge did say today, you're not completely reinventing the wheel with the quarterback. You're working on footwork. You're working on fundamentals. You're working on reads, certainly. And all those reasons to me – and this is why, for years, J- Josh McDaniels was his own quarterbacks coach, right? There, at Patriots actually didn't have an actual quarterbacks coach on staff because McDaniels was just the quarterbacks coach. I find it a little bit hard to believe, especially over what we've heard from the last couple of days, that it's going to be Patricia with the play sheet, and he's going to coach offensive line, and he's going to call the offensive plays because when you get into during the week and you talk about installs and you talk about film reviews and all that type of stuff, He's going to be with the big guys, right? He's going to be in the O-line room. He's going to be breaking down tape with the offensive linemen. Judge is going to be the one that's going to be with Mac Jones 24-7. So most of the time, the OC is either his own quarterback's coach or the OC spends the majority of his time with the quarterback anyways, even if he has a dedicated quarterback's coach, because those two guys have to be on the same wavelength. That's the most important connection for play caller is quarterback, obviously. So I I actually think, and he mentioned a couple of times today, he went into a pretty good answer about how you can simulate a game, even though they don't have games to call right now, they can pull up tape and kind of go through the motions of what it would be like to call plays in a game. And he mentioned that he does those drills behind the scenes. I don't think he's doing those drills if he's not planning on being the play caller or isn't at least on the inside track to being the play caller. I, I, yeah, I, but I think, you know, he's a competitor. Everybody in there's a competitor. And, he, you know, you hear backup quarterbacks talking about how they prepare all week like they're starting the game. I, yeah. I didn't read too much into that. I would assume Matt Patricia's doing the same thing. I would assume Nick Kaylee's doing the same thing. I would assume Bill has every coach on the staff prepare as if they're calling plays because you might have to one week. You never know. I, yeah, it's an interesting anecdote from Judge. You're right. I just, I can't read that much. I, I don't read that much into it. And, and maybe it does mean he's the favorite, but. Yeah, I just don't like the optics of the offensive line coach calling the offense because, again, you're not in the meeting rooms with Mac Jones when you break into positions, right? You're in the meeting room with the offensive linemen. So now we get into one of those scenarios that I think it was thrown out a lot about the other side of the football is, is there one succinct message? Is everybody on the same page? Is everybody pulling the rope in the same direction? I think when you have Joe Judge coaching up Mac Jones day in and day out. And then you get to Sunday and Matt Patricia is the one that's got the play sheet. I I think you run into the possibility that there might be some disconnect there. So again, I would also mention just because we don't know what the plan is there, there's definitely a plan and they kind of told us a little bit more than I think people are making it sound like they told us, you know, we know what positions Joe judge and Matt Patricia are coaching We know how this is sort of going to be put together more or less. The play caller is a little bit ambiguous, but I think the general outline of what they're doing on offense 
is very similar to what they do on defense where Matt Patricia and Joe Judge are your offensive versions of Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo, right? They, they kind of break up the duties of offensive coordinator. Those two break up the duties of defensive coordinator and they go from there. And of course, Bill Belichick is involved in all of it and he's got a hand in all of it and certainly has a, ma- a huge hand in max development and all that type of thing as well. So Again, I'm not worried about the titles. I don't think either one of us are really that worried about the play caller. The question is big picture. Are they going to have, are they going to point the ship in the right direction, right? Are they going to have Mac on the upward trajectory? Are they going to have the offense and the scheme updated and adapted to the personnel and all those types of things? We'll see what happens. We'll see. I I don't think Bill Belichick himself is going to call offensive plays. I don't think he wants to call plays, honestly. I, I think he wants to be kind of that overseer of the game and the, and the game manager from the CEO's chair instead of having to get into the weeds of the play sheet and things like that. But uh, other than all that, which I think is the biggest drama that, that we have out of all these things in terms of play caller titles, things like that, were there any other anecdotes, uh, tidbits that you picked up over the last couple of days that you thought really stood out? Um. I mean, the, the, the whole thing from Cam Accord about the long snapper responsibilities was awesome. I, <laughs> I know people are kind of down on Cam Accord, and honestly, I get it. You know, the special teams had a really rough year last year, and that that falls on him. But coaches, and, and a number of guys said this, Gerard Mayo said this, uh, Matt Patricia said it, I think Joe Judge said it. And, and, you know, at their core, coaches are just teachers. That's what they are. Right. And Cam Accord loves to teach. He loves, and he's so, like, that element, at least with us, he's fantastic. Every time we talk to him, I I would like legitimately learn something about the game of yeah. football. I think it's great. So, you know, I know people are kind of down on him, but it's I'm I'd be inter- they they've lost a lot of special teams personnel recently, right? And I think they've made some moves to kind of enhance that unit. I'm interested to see what happens this year. I like ultimately it falls on Cam Accord because he's in charge of that group, but. I'm interested to see if last year, I really want to believe last year was a blip. I'll, like, I'll be honest. I want to believe last year was a blip because like, I, it, it's hard not to be captivated when, you know, a chord speaks. And when he talks about, you can tell he's really passionate about all of that. He checks yeah. all the boxes, right? It's hard to exactly, t- maybe it's something in the s- schematics of it, but like, if I'm hiring a coach, that guy's going to be on my short list. Just his passion for the game in the, in the way he appreciates the little thing in the game. So I, I, you know, I just, I, I like to listen to him. He doesn't sound too discouraged by last year. It's just going to be interested to see, you know, kind of what the results are. Cause you know, if they have another year like this year, as passionate as, as last year, sorry, if they have another year like last year, as passionate as he is, it's, it's a results driven business, but I, I'm glad they gave him another shot. And I'm, I, I, I really hope, and I think that there'll be improvement. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what the special teams looks like. You mentioned some of the guys that they lost, Brandon King, Brandon Bolden, Gunner, obviously, on returns. Maybe that could be addition by subtraction in some places, right? I don't think Brandon King in particular was really great last year. He had some bad penalties on special teams and maybe was uh, not a part of the problem from a culture standpoint at all, but maybe part of the problem on the field. So we'll see if that's – uh, something that actually helps them in the long run instead of hurts them in some areas of the team. I think the one thing that I was actually really shocked about, and this comes off the heels of Matt Groh 
uh, on draft weekend. It was actually after day two of the draft where he was singing his praises as well. It's been, and look, the coaches, they throw bouquets and they're, and they're, they're try to hype guys up sometimes and things like that. But Cameron McGrone is getting a whole lot of love from people in that building. Like to the point where I almost wonder if they're actually trying to get him like to, to fully buy into this fact that he's a, a really good player for them. Right. And somebody that could really break out for them now that he's uh, free from that injury you have Steve Belichick, who's not really somebody that that is a man of many words a lot of the times when we hear from him. Uh, Gerard Mayo uh, talking him up as well, basically saying that they saw a really, really gifted player towards the end of last season when Cameron Grone did try to practice and ramp it up before they deactivated him for the rest of the season. Mayo saying he's flying around uh, Steve Belichick saying he fit right in. There was seamless, you know, didn't notice him at all as uh, being held back by anything. And they really talking up uh, Cam McGrone and macro basically called him an additional draft pick, right? He's saying that he's essentially another day two pick that they feel like they're adding yeah. onto this rookie class. What do you make of all the Cam McGrone praise? Because there's a ton of Cam McGrone praise right now not just coming from us anymore. Like we, we all hype him up and I think we're all excited about him. I know a, a lot of people in Patriot nation that really pay attention to the team and, and really know every pick, player and every pick like Cam McGrone are extremely excited to, to see him. It sounds like the coaching staff is just as excited as all we are to, to get this guy out there. So I haven't heard that kind of praise for a player that hasn't necessarily even played in the NFL uh, in a while. And, and now they're really keeping it on Cam McGrone a lot. Yeah, I mean, when y'all got got with Jared Stidham in 2020, it sounds a little like that. No, it's apples and oranges. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you forget McGrone before he got hurt was a fringe first-round pick. And I don't know yeah. that that ultimately would have materialized. I, I think it was probably second or third. But there were some people who thought he had finished that season strong at Michigan that he could maybe sneak into the back end of the first round. I, you know, there's, I, I, I get why they're excited. You watch who he was before he got hurt. You get why they're excited. And I think they gave him, you know, he could have come back and played at the end of last year and he didn't. And I think the idea is that he's fully healthy, fully rested, just ready to come in, hit the ground running, all of that. Yeah. I, I understand why they're excited. I do. We'll see if there's, you know, ultimately the results, but I, you know, I'll throw Raekwon McMillan in, in there too. Cause he was a guy I loved last year. I was very high on last year and, Albeit brief, he got off to a good start in training camp before he got hurt. I think between those two guys, and I'll, I'll add Mac Wilson, between yeah. McGrone, Wilson, and McMillan, you're, you're going to get one legitimate linebacker there at least. I, I would be shocked yeah. if not one of those guys pans out, maybe two. They're all kind of coin flips, but you know, you take as many shots at it as you can. They clearly think McGrone is the best of the three, but I... I've said this since the draft. I've said this since before the draft. I don't think inside linebacker is as big of a need. I think it's certainly an area they could have improved, but they, they should be okay, you know, relatively speaking. I think when you look at their defense, cornerback's still a bigger issue. I actually think linebacker has – there's some upside there. There's there's really some upside there if those guys kind of figure it out and stay healthy. The way it looks like, and this is probably a pretty good segue into what we're going to do for the second half of the show, the way it feels – is that they actually took Cam McGrone at some point in time, their evaluation of him coming out of Michigan and also what they've learned about him in the last year and put him in the stack, right? And said, 
Cam right. McGrone or Christian Harris, Cam McGrone or Quay Walker, Cameron, you, you know what I mean? And, and actually did that exercise and went down the line. And I think they came out of it saying Cam McGrone. Like we actually like Cam McGrone a little bit better than some of these guys they could have had on day two. Like whether it was later on day two, like somebody like Darian Beavers or, or someone like uh, Chad Mumma or along those lines, they came out saying that they feel like they have the guy already in that vein, that developmental young, fast, new age type of linebacker. I think they felt like they didn't have to draft it because they already had it in the building. We, it's just been a little bit more behind the scenes of what we've been able to see. So I'll pull up the depth chart here and get into the defensive side of the ball. Uh, a couple of things that have changed a little bit over the last couple of days with some releases and things like that. Uh, but this is uh, the full roster now. I also put specialists on here as well, uh, but we can uh, get to those at the end. Uh, let's start at left to right. Let's move right across. And, and I want to start with the defensive line. And uh, the, the number one guy, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're talking so much about new additions, Alex, or, or redshirt guys like Cam McGrone. How big is Christian Barmore's development? Because if there's a dude on this defense, and what I mean by a dude is I mean like an elite all-pro level player on this defense, it's, it's Christian Barmore. Like he's the guy that has that potential to reach that level. So I actually think that we're – and I get it, you know, what? It, there's not much to talk about right now with Christian Barmore, but his development and hopefully him taking that next step forward into a really, uh, you know, Pro Bowl, All-Pro caliber uh, defensive lineman, uh, that would be massive for this defense that absolutely needs him to be a game wrecker. Yeah, especially because they, they lost a key piece up front in Kyle Van Noy, right, where playing off, you know, he was kind of able to hold things steady, playing opposite Matt Judon, allowed Matt Judon, to play a little more free. Who's that guy going to be this year? Is it going to be Josh Uche? Is it going to be Ronnie Perkins? I'm not saying that they're going to move Barmore out to the edge, but I just think Judon, reckless isn't the right word for it, but Judon's at his best when he can kind of just focus in on one thing. Run the arc, yeah. Pin his ears back and get the quarterback, yeah. Yeah. In order to be able to play like that, you need sturdy presences elsewhere up front. And I thought Van Noy was a guy like that last year. I thought Dietrich Wise was a guy like that last year. But, you know, Van Van Noy really, because he's on that other side, you know, it's different playing in the middle. I don't know that Barmore can can replicate that effect, but they need, you know, they need somebody to keep offenses honest where they can't just key in on Judon. And Barmore probably is the best shot at doing that. So, yeah, I think that jump would be massive. I certainly think he's up for it. I really do. I thought he was just scratching the surface last year. So, yeah. you know, I'm excited about that one, but it would be big. Yeah. When he and Judon were rolling, the Patriots defense was rolling. That was during yeah. that win streak, that two-headed tandem. They were lining them up sometimes on opposite sides of the line and getting them both one-on-ones. And other times they would run games on the same side of the line. And you have some real problems that they can cause when they're both rushing on the same side. And especially if there's a weak link over there, the game that stands out to me is that Charger game and poor Storm Norton, the Chargers right tackle. It was either Barmore or it was Judon rushing hot on on pretty much every passing situation and they ate them alive. So those types of matches, uh, mismatches that they can pick out, the two-headed monster that they can play with, uh, that's a big part of their pass rush this year. And I, I just hope that Barmore can take that next step of being a little bit more sturdy against the run. So he can, he doesn't ever even need to think about coming off the field. Right. And and the one thing that I look right. at with this group too, uh, to segue it uh, to some of the, uh, the other players here, 
I look at Devon Godshaw there too, and, and I say, okay, well, you know, he didn't really work out too much well as a, a zero technique, right? A straight up nose tackle over the center. Maybe they do kind of morph this into more of an even front four three type of look. It's not obviously going to be a base four three. It's more like a four two nowadays. But Godshaw as a one technique in the shade. Uh, that I think is a lot more comfortable of a role for him than playing straight up over the center. And if you do play those even fronts a little bit more, it allows Barmore to play the three technique, which is I think really where he would thrive the most. The three technique is where you put the stud interior pass rusher. That's where Aaron Donald plays most of the time is at the three technique. And that's where you can really get those one-on-ones and scheme up those matchups for him to just pin his ears back and get up the field. So I wonder with Godshaw who does, you, they can save some money. If they decide at the end of training camp that Godshaw is not the answer, they can get out of that contract this year and save some money on the salary cap. So I, I look at that player and I say, well, you know, they got to figure out either a way that they're going to use him better than he was last year, or they might actually end up moving on from him at the end of training camp if he doesn't have a good camp. So uh, what is your feeling or your sense right now on, on Devon Godshaw, who I really didn't think was what they – thought they were getting I thought they were thought they were signing somebody that was going to be a true nose tackle a two gapping right not just will for good but somebody in that mold and that's not really the type of player he ended up being and look he talked about that when he first signed and you know he was a big fan of Vince Wilforks and he kind of wanted to continue that that nose tackle lineage in New England yeah. I he he played he at, at last year and look maybe they try something completely new but I thought last year he was at his best when he was a three four defensive end yeah. and Maybe, maybe that, you know, to talk about what I talked about before, maybe that's it. Maybe he's the one playing opposite Judon. You're not going to, at least on early downs, I don't know if he's going to be out there on passing downs, but maybe like right. a three, four end kind of role. And then you still need that nose. I, I'm, we've talked about this. I'm surprised they didn't take a nose in that draft. You know, yeah. maybe it's uh, Carl Davis, who they seemingly really like, and they brought back in free agency. Daniel Aquale isn't quite big enough, I don't think, to play the nose, but he's somebody they're very high on and played well down the stretch last year. I, I think at this point, if Godshaw is going to make the team, it's as a 3-4 end. And I'm just yeah. talking about how big uh, Daniel Aquale. Carl Davis, like 320. Carl they Davis brought a Aquale. When they brought a, yeah, when they brought a Aquale up last year, it was to be a pass rusher, right? To be an interior pass rusher on right. third down. So I don't think that that's the role that they have in mind for him. But you just mentioned it there. You know, I, I just feel like I, I look at the way that they're constructed – I really do think an even front it maybe makes a little bit more sense with the personnel that they have, given the way that it's gone for them, right? It just moves Gotcha into a better spot. It moves Barmore into the optimal spot where he's not having to take on blockers and two gap and things like that. And he can actually shoot up the field. And then they got guys like Wise and Anderson and even Lawrence Guy, who I think can play the five technique. And those guys can be like your four, three end, right? So then you have a nice, strong, uh, sturdy, strong side there with those players and you mentioned that they didn't draft a nose tackle they didn't sign like a guy like Marquand McCall as a UDFA or anything like that either they really really believe in Devon Godshaw and Carl Davis or they're thinking that they don't actually need a Marquand McCall right because they're not actually going to play with a straight up over center player that they're going to truly need that two gapping nose tackle so I, I wonder if that was maybe a tea leave that they don't feel like they actually need that role on the team this year. And that's why they didn't go after one of these nose tackles in the draft because they're not 
going in that direction schematically uh, with the defensive front moving forward. Any any love? Uh, the guys in yellow, for people that, that don't know, I should have mentioned this. The guys in yellow who are guys that I have currently as roster locks based off a of contract, based off a of role last year, this year, projected things like that. Any of the love, any love for any of the players not in yellow on the defensive line? I, they t- clearly see something in Henry Anderson. I don't blame them. I mean, he was a good player before uh, last year, I and mean, he's been good player, veteran uh, player around the NFL for years, and he's got some versatility. He's got some girth against the run. Uh, he's clearly somebody that they want to keep around. That's why they reworked his contract. So he's almost a lock just because they clearly either told him, well, we're either going to cut you or you're going to take a discount, and he took a discount. So I think he's probably going to be here. Yeah, I, I'd say LeBron Ray. I'm really excited about LeBron Ray. He didn't go yeah. undrafted because he, you know, lack of talent. He couldn't stay healthy. And will he stay healthy in the NFL? Who the hell knows? But in terms of talent, I'm really excited to see what he can do. If he can stay on the field, I think he can be a difference maker. So I, I wouldn't call him a roster lock just yet, but he, he's somebody I'll be watching closely as we get into OTAs and training camp. Yeah, that's fair. Sam Roberts is going to be a fun player too. Like no one actually knows yeah, anything about feels- Sam Roberts. Yeah, Bro, I was just gonna say he feels like a couple years away, maybe. But I mean, yeah. the, the the six block field goals in five years, incredible. I just want to see yeah. him on the kick block unit. Yeah, that's a good stat. It, it is interesting. Like you know, you don't really know much about him. It's even bigger, I would say, of a transition than from like uh, Lenore Ryan for Kyle Duggar because that school is even smaller uh, than a place like Lenore Ryan. Lenore Ryan's actually had some NFL players other than Kyle right. Duggar. So we'll see what ends up happening with Sam Roberts, but. Clearly they saw something even at that level, the power certainly in the upper body is definitely there. Uh, so we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, let's move over to your favorite position, the edge rushers, uh, edge and all capitals. Not a real position. Yeah, not a real position. Because no, it's a, not a real a, position. It's not. It's when you have, when you're talking like generally, I get why you use it during the draft. Cause some guys, depending yeah. on the system might be a defensive end, might be an outside linebacker. There's no depending on the system here. We know what we know what their roles are. It line what you have there, linebacker, 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 defensive lineman is how I would split those guys up. Edge. Edge rushers. But they're not, but they're not. Okay, okay. I I wanna get to I wanna get to the younger guys in a second, but I I do want to start with Matthew Judon because I, I thought Matthew Judon was a great signing. I thought it was a great pickup. I thought it was a good season last year. He did do the Chandler Jones thing a little bit, though, right? Where he, first 10, 11 games, he's got like 12 sacks, faded down the stretch. He talked about buy-in and, and maybe just trying to do too much. Like, he was trying to take over the game too often, right? Instead of just playing within himself and playing within the system. He was, especially against the Bills, he mentioned at the end of the season that he was just trying to to take over the game instead of letting the game come to him. Are you worried at all about Matthew Judon being that kind of player uh, where he starts really hot out of the gate, but then cools off towards the end of the season? Or do you think he's going to learn from uh, kind of what exactly was last year? I, I am a little worried about it. I think also you mentioned he was trying to take over games. He kind of had to. Right yeah. between him and Barmore, that was it. The secondary was cooked at that point. Um, you know, the linebacker play was kind of lacking. Like they needed him to be a playmaker. This is where I look at: can Barmore shoulder more of that load? Can they get something from Wilson, McMillan, McGrone, where they just don't need to ask as much of him? Right? It yeah. you know it was kind of like a star receiver where he started being double and triple teamed and maybe being held a little bit, but that's another conversation. But you know, he's getting all the attention yeah. and 
nobody else, you know, nobody else stepped up, took advantage of those one-on-one matchups, anything like that. So I am a little worried about it, but I don't necessarily think the fix is Matthew Judon, like conserving himself early in the year or anything like that. I think the fix is figuring out how to win once Judon gets taken away. Right. He, it, or maybe it's two separate issues. Like I'm kind of formulating this take in real time, you know? Yeah. You, you want Judon to be a playmaker, a difference maker, a game wrecker for 17 games. And right. maybe that's a conditioning thing or whatever, whatever that is, it's between him and the coaching staff. It's really hard to identify what that was from the outside, outside of some more double teams. There was nothing obviously schematic about it at the same time. The, the unit as a whole you can't have Matthew Judon get taken out of a game. Just throw your hands up and say, well, that's all we got, right? You need to kind of have yeah. a plan B, a plan C. I thought that – I don't want to say they didn't have one last year because we don't know. They just never really went to it. They kind of just kept trying the same thing. Have a better or, or a quicker trigger to go to to another plan and try to work around maybe Judon getting erased if and when that does happen. So plan B or plan C is the next two names on the list, right? Josh Uche and Ronnie Perkins, at least at that position, which one of these two guys I think is the best way to put it? Because we all, we all know at this point, especially Uche, what he brings to the table and his skill set. I think we all remember Ronnie Perkins from the draft and what he brings to the table, but which one of these two guys out of Uche and Perkins, do you feel like has the best chance to actually be, let's call it a full-time player, like for lack of a better term, right? Somebody that's a a real contributor to this team. Uche over the last couple of years has basically been a 20% snap guy when he's been out there as a, as a designated pass rusher, as a third down pass rusher type of player, not an every down guy. Do you think that either one of these guys has the chance to develop into an every down player? And if so, which one? Well, so I'm going to kind of take a cop out here. I actually think they pair off each other very well. And I think that rotation on the strong yeah. side has some, yeah. am I wrong though? Like, like there's potential yeah, there with could, Ronnie they Perkins. Could, they could mix and match it. They could. Yeah. Right. I think with Ronnie Perkins, maybe is more that, you know, pure strength option. It's almost like you look at running backs, right? Like the thunder and lightning running backfield setup. shout out Reggie Bush and Lendell white, but there's a million examples uh, yeah. where, where Perkins is just kind of your bully. And when you, when you need that that battering ram, he can be that guy, maybe an early down guy, probably more of a traditional uh, edge setter. And then Josh Uche could just play shot out of a cannon and go get the quarterback. And I still won't write off Anthony Jennings either. I, I, I still won't. Will. I think as a as a passing down edge setter, led he led Alabama in the SEC. I don't remember if he led the nation in pass deflections as a defensive lineman his final year in college. That's something they're going to value tremendously. It shows a guy can hold his own at the line of scrimmage, doesn't overcommit, knows how to read and get into passing lanes. Like, I, I, I think all three of them, I think there's some value in rotating those three guys. I, I, if one of them comes out and is just, you know, balls to the wall, outstanding on a roll, you play them. But I think there is value in rotating those three guys because they're three very different players. They'll give you different looks and they'll allow you to get a little more creative defensively. So basically to sum up what you're saying is Josh Uche and Ronnie Perkins combined can basically give them what Kyle Van Noy has given them into the last three years, right? They can combine into that player where I think Perkins, when you watch him in tape at Oklahoma and assuming that he can make this transition now to a stand-up edge rusher, his block anticipation and his ability to identify what they are doing against the run was really, really good. He has really good eyes. He has really good anticipation in the trenches to basically – 
bob and weave out of blocks and get out of blocks and get to the football good nose for the ball uh, he's certainly the guy that has the best run defense repertoire right the person that can be the best edge setter the person that can be the best playmaker against the run and then in third down josh uche comes on and he's the pass rusher right he's the guy that pins his ears back and gets after the quarterback i i don't hate that way of looking at it at all and i think it could be uh, something that they look at it that way too i know you won't give up your on your boy anthony jennings that's fine uh, you can continue to to uh not give up on that one i'm not giving up on anybody i never give up on people but but anthony jennings you you gotta see something right i mean at least uj you've seen something even though it well, hasn't I mean, been consistent we've seen a flash or two of uj making plays in the nfl Let's, let's not forget, in 2020, and I know the 2020 season is a throwaway to some people, but in 2020, yeah. Anthony Jennings had the second most snaps of any linebacker besides Sean Bentley, and there were flashes. And then last year, he was hurt. He didn't play. I, I would yeah. I would say we've seen something from Anthony Jennings. It's not a ton, and it wasn't recent, okay. like Josh Uche had last spring, last summer. But I yeah. wouldn't say we've seen nothing from Anthony Jennings. When he's been on the field, he's been competitive. The issue has been staying on the field. He looks slow to me, slow in space, especially. So if you're going to play well, him on the not, edge. That's not, he's like an early down, you know, or, or, you know, like he, to me, is a great RPO defender because yeah, he's going to be able to stay in the passing lane while still holding the edge. Yeah. The one thing I'll give him, he's got more length than the other two guys, right? He's much longer, much girthier than the other two guys. So that's the one concern that I would have about Ronnie Perkins being like a true first down edge setter is the length. He doesn't have particularly long arms. He's not particularly tall. Anthony Jennings is a little bit more built than he is in that vein uh, to be that every down edge setter. So maybe, yeah, maybe they do like that part of his skill set. Certainly that's why they drafted him, right? I mean, that's that was the right. appeal uh, to draft him to begin with. So uh, we'll see what ends up happening. Like I said, I, I don't give up on anybody. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now. Uh, maybe he can still turn it around. All right. Inside linebackers, off-ball linebackers, uh, Juwan Bentley, we know, uh, early down Mike, you know, he, he's going to be the guy in the middle. That's his role. You mentioned it when we were talking about Cameron McGrone with the coaches uh, just a second ago. Basically, out of that, these next three guys, Wilson, McMillan, and McGrone, they just need one of these guys to be good, right? One of these guys to be serviceable and maybe even better than serviceable. Uh, they're looking for somebody to play that weak side linebacker spot off the ball. As long as one of these guys pops and one of these guys is productive in that role, they should be all set. And I think all three of these guys have athleticism, have ability to play in coverage, and maybe a little bit more sideline to sideline than some of the guys they've had over the last couple of years, like Hightower and Jamie Collins at this stage. Sorry, you cut out there. Say the last part again. Oh, they just be play a little bit more sideline to sideline, I said, uh, than, than Hightower oh, yeah. and Jamie Collins at this stage. So I think one of these guys pops – then they're in good shape. And this might be the same thing too, where they're, they're more similar players than Jay Perkins and Jennings, but you kind of get that rotation going, right? I think yeah. it, it's hard to say with McGrone, he's coming off the knee injury. I would argue McMillan's, they all three can play sideline to sideline. I would argue McMillan's the best downhill player. I would argue Wilson's the best coverage player of the three. And McGrone's probably yeah. somewhere in the middle, right? So I think you can mix it. Now look, how many guys are going to make the team and whatever, but I, I think a lot of their positions this year, especially defensively, are going to be by rotation. I don't know that you're going to have established starters in a ton of spots. The the 
one of the biggest strengths of this roster right now is depth. And I think you have to take advantage of that. So I, I, I expect all three, assuming they're all healthy, I expect all three to play contributing roles. Yeah, granted it was early in camp before he got that injury, but the best coverage linebacker in Patriots camp last year was Raquan McMillan. I, and I don't think it was particularly close. He was easily the best guy in coverage and not just covering running backs on flares out of the backfield and so, like running the seam, dropping into zone, really getting depth and getting good uh, ability down the field to get up the field. I, I think that he's somebody that is truly being underrated and uh, I'm interested to see what he's able to do because I I think he was easily going in uh, to the preseason before he got injured last year. I I thought he was going to play on third down, honestly. Like I I thought he was that good in coverage and cramp. So uh, in camp, excuse me. So we'll see what happens with Raekwon McMillan. I know a lot of people are, are want to see Cameron McGrone. We all want to see Cameron McGrone. And I think that the team wants to see Cameron McGrone, Uh, but don't sleep on McMillan. Like Alex is saying, I think he's somebody that that's also going to be factored in here. Moving right along here, I like this pace. We're, we're doing a little this a little bit quicker than last time. I Look appreciate that. you actually rapid-firing. Cornerback. This position, uh, I have Devin Hafford on there. I got to take him off. This position, more than any other position on the roster, Alex, feels like they have a lot of bodies, but I'm not sure if any of these bodies are really that good, right? Like, they have right. a ton of corners, on the roster, I taking Devin Hafford off of here. I think they're at nine corners on the team right now, if I'm eyeballing that correctly, but are any of these guys more than, you know, I hate to use CB one, CB two, CB three, but really it feels like if Jalen Mills is your, is your third corner, you're in good shape right now. He's probably your number one corner, which does not feel very good at all. Well, yeah, I'll go back to the starting pitching analogy I like to use, right, with baseball, where you have number one starters and you have aces, and not every ace is a number one starter and not every number one starter is an ace. Uh, I think right, right now Jalen Mills is a, is a, you know, number one starter by default. I, You know, how many teams in the league would he be the number one on? I'd say less than half, certainly. Um, yeah. And, and I also think Jalen Mills is at his best when he's playing a rover role, when he's playing some corner, some nickel, some yeah. safety, some linebacker. So – yeah, it does. It does feel like they're up against it. It does feel like they're either counting on Jack Jones to just pick things up very quickly or Malcolm Butler to just come back after a year off like nothing's wrong. And we've seen with all these opt out guys from the COVID year just how difficult that can be. This one's wide open. I'm actually surprised Devin Hafford got cut. Devin Hafford was going to be, you know, one of my sneaky UDFAs to make the team. Big body yeah. corner, fantastic college production, all that. He seemed like a fit. Maybe he was hurt or something. Like, I don't know. But yeah, they, they, I'd still like to see them out here, whether it's James Bradbury, whether it's somebody else who gets cut at the end of camp, what have you. I, I, I still think they're short here, uh, I would say. Yeah. If there's one position on the roster where they're dying, you know, for years, it's been the number one receiver, right? Everybody's like, they got, right. they got other good pieces, but they need the number one receiver. I think now it's turned to the number one corner. Like if there's one position that they absolutely need a stud at to fill out the depth chart, it feels like at cornerback, again, they got numbers. They got nine guys on the roster. I think really taking six or seven of those guys can play in the NFL, right? But none of these guys move the needle for you significantly at that spot. You're really, really hoping because Marcus Jones is a nickel. He's a slot. He's not going to play on the outside. That's never going to be his role. You're really, really hoping that Jack Jones is just an absolute stud, right? Like he's a day one contributor. 
when we talked to Eric Gelko a few weeks ago about Jack Jones, he thought that Jack Jones would probably early on in his career be a nickel and then move outside eventually in the NFL. The Patriots don't have the luxury to play him in the slot, nor do they have the necessity to play him in the slot. They're, they got tremendous depth at, in the slot between Jonathan Jones, Miles Bryant, Marcus Jones. Like they go three, four deep in the slot. It's the outside spot that's the concern. I think you're going to see if this is the group or obviously they're going to whittle this down, but assuming that that's the top half of the group, you're going to see to me a lot of we're going to double Stefan Diggs and whatever Gabriel Davis does to us, he does to us. Right. I, I don't think that you can trust right. any one of these guys on an Island with the, with Diggs or with Hill or with any of these players. So this is, I think going to harken back a little bit more to those Belichick days where it was, double the number one out of the game, put your number one corner, your number one corner on their number two guy and hope that Jalen Mills can hold water against Gabriel Davis, right? Like that, that's sort of the idea here. And we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, What about Sean Wade in the chat? Sean Wade to me is like uh, almost teetering on Jeff Thomas territory for a lot of Patriots fans where like, Everybody just kind of thinks that this guy could, could be the potential savior. Uh, I, we'll see. Like, I really am going to have to see it in training camp from Sean Wade for me to to be too excited about that uh, player for me. Well, Jeff Thomas is like no-showed in the U.S. Oh, is a hamstring injury. That's why. Oh, yeah. He played. Okay. Um, Pittsburgh needs him. They're 1-4. That's what happens when you don't have Jeff Thomas. Um, yeah, I, Wade's an interesting one because he played – like he's built like an outside corner and he played like an outside corner. Uh, his last year in college, be a trouble with it. Prior yeah. to that, he was a big slot and, and and he was better there. So should they try him at outside? I think by process of elimination, you kind of have to just because yeah. you're pretty good at well, the they slot. Between they, they acquired him. That's where he was playing. Right. In the slot. But now yeah. you got, I think they're well, fine. It's slot corner. We're going on. No, on they were the playing outside. outside. When, they, when they made the trade, when he got here, the last preseason game he played in, uh, he was oh, playing right. outside. So I think they're trying to develop him as an outside corner. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah. Uh, I no, think they're you're all good. And again, by process, by process of elimination, you have Jonathan Jones, you have Marcus Jones, you have Miles Bryant. Like right. you're, you're, you're good in the slot. Maybe not going forward. Jonathan Jones in a contract. See how Marcus Jones looks, but. For this year, they're fine right. there. They need the help on the outside. So I think you kind of have to try Sean Wade out there and see what he'll give you. Worst case scenario, you can always move him back inside. But I think for this year, he needs to be considered an outside corner. Uh, but, you know, between him, and, I, I'll, I'll take him outside over Juwan Williams. I'll take him outside over Terrence right. Mitchell. He might be their, their, what is that, fourth outside corner right now, third outside corner right now, whatever that is. Yeah, I guess so the last one, Richard Jack Jones. Yeah, so the last question that I, I wanted to bring up here at the corners before we move on is jo- is Juwan. Is this it for Juwan? I think we all assume it's it for Nikhil Harry. It's kind of the same conversation, just on the other side of the football. What I don't even know if there's anything that they can get for Juwan Williams. Like he might just be straight up cut if he doesn't if he doesn't beat out like let's say like you're just talking about Sean Wade, like Terrence Mitchell. Even I, I think it is somebody that could beat him out for a roster spot at this point. The way that they look at it. If he's not, they're not going to carry nine corners. So somebody's going to have to go from right. this list. And it does feel like the clock is very much running out on Juwan Williams. Yeah. So the only reason to me this is different than Nikhil is I, I still think they could get something for Nikhil Harry. 
not going to get a lot, but you know, like look at the Jared Stidham yeah. deal, right? I think they right. could do that same trade with Nikhil yeah. Harry. I, I think that would especially work. if somebody gets hurt in camp. Right, exactly. I don't know if they could do it today, but at some point, I don't even think you're getting that for Juwan Williams at this point. You know, he yeah that game. There was one play last year in the game in Buffalo where he gets beat off the line so bad. I don't remember who the receiver was. I want to say it was Gabriel Davis. He gets beat off the line so bad that he didn't even run with the receiver down the field. He just turned and watched. It, there's there's no coming back from that. There's just no yeah. coming back from that. So I, if he make he might make the roster by default. If they can't trade him, I don't know that they will cut him because of the optics of it, right? Right. But maybe maybe just turn him into a core special teamer then and whatever. But yeah, I, I think Juwan Williams at corner is over. We'll see how the roster ultimately shakes out. I'll probably have him off my first roster projection, but yeah, it, uh, I, I think that that experiment's over. As much as I think it's too late for this, honestly, I, the best that Jawan Williams has looked on an NFL field is covering tight ends. And I yeah. think it's probably yeah. too late. And they've clearly moved on with, with this next group here with Duggar peppers. Now, I, I don't think that they view him as the tight end stopper anymore, but he had some good tape against guys like Gesicki, he even battled with Travis Kelsey a few times in some Kansas City games over, over the last couple of years. So I actually think that he's somebody that I, I, I would have thought would have developed better in that tight end stopper role. And these big tight ends are basically wide receivers at this point, but he's not at such a speed disadvantage against some of those guys as he is at the receiver position, right? You know, those guys are all four fives to four sixes, just like Juwan Williams. So he's not getting burnt like he is when he has to go up against Stephon Diggs. So I, I would really have been more interested to see them develop him in that role. But with the depth that they have at safety, they, they've kind of moved away from it. I don't think there's much to say about the force four names on this list. I think we all kind of know at safety uh, where all these guys fit in and what all these guys uh, project to be for the Patriots. Joshua Bledsoe is an interesting name. They, there was some good things that came out of media availability towards the end of last year about Joshua Bledsoe, especially about his football acumen, his ability to pick up the playbook. Uh, Schooler made it through rookie minicamp, which is more than some of the UDFAs can say. So obviously he didn't completely bust over the weekend and maybe projects as somebody that could fill a special teams role as well. Uh, out of those two guys, who do you think has a chance to make the roster? Do you think both guys have a chance? What are your feelings on them? Yeah. So I, Bloods is an interesting one to me. I, I, I don't know that he's more than a special teams player, but I, I think he is, can be a core special teams player. I'd probably put him over in that column you have over there on the right. I, we talked about this earlier, right? Kind of the overhaul of the personnel this year. I think both of these guys, Bledsoe and School, are, are, are both have a chance, real chance to make the roster's core special teamers. So yeah, I don't know how much either of them are, are contributing on defense, but again, they need those guys. I, you know, Jakob Johnson's now in Vegas. I think he struggled last year at times, you know, blocking in, in kick coverage. I really don't need to see Giovanni Talai try to block a punt rusher again. You got enough yeah. of that. Uh, they need new blood there, and I think these guys both have upside in that sense. Yeah, so you – I don't necessarily disagree. You would put them in the kick coverage specialist categories is what you're saying, maybe more than safety at this point. Right, yeah, I, I would agree, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel you on that. I think that Joshua Bledsoe in particular, when they drafted him, they talked up his special teams ability, and I think he's somebody that they 
figured if he didn't make it on defense could have a long time role on the team on special teams. So I think that that's definitely a potential avenue for him on the team. All right, moving on to those specialists now that we have here. Really no, I wouldn't say any real, you know, uncertainties here with this group. Like I think Nick Folk, Cardona, and Bailey, they did add a long snapper who I have to add to this as well. Um, but I think those three guys are pretty safe. But what do you know about Jake Julian? You're the punter guy. Is there any th- sort of chance? Because we talk so much about Jake Bailey and his contract and why drafting a punter might make some sense. Is there a possibility that Jake Julian has the talent to at least push Jake Bailey enough that it's worth it from a dollars and cents perspective? Well, that's what it comes down to, right? Can Jake Bailey prove he's $4 million better than Jake right. Julian? Also, you know, they could extend him too, and, and that kind of ends it. They brought in a second long snapper. So that yeah. tells me that, that Jake Julian's not just there to hold pads, right, and kick it. Right. He's got a big leg. He's kicked in the cold. I It would be the strangest thing that's ever happened. Like, I, I honestly think there's – and I don't think either of these are likely – but I think there's a better chance Julian replaces Bailey in camp this year than Nordine does Folk, I would say. Yeah. Think that, that's that. a fair way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. 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 I think especially after, you know, Folk last year, I think even if Folk struggles in camp, he'll get the benefit of the doubt early in the season. Um, I, I think Bailey's job's probably safe, but Julian's going to be fun in camp. You know, I think he's one of those guys to experience it, but we talked about this a lot with Bailey when they got him, right? The ball just sounded different coming off his foot. From what yeah. I understand, I've never seen Jake Julian in person. I've never heard him kick the ball, but from what I've read about him, from what I've seen on TV, he seems like he has that kind of leg. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. He's got a good leg. He's got a couple of punts. I think it was, I read over 70 yards in the air. Uh, So he's got a huge leg. We mentioned it. It's, is he $4 million worse than Jake Bailey? That's a big question. I think Nick folks did absolute lock to, to be the kicker. He's just been so, consistent i mean he's honestly over the last two years he's probably been the most consistent player on the team right so i, I right. find it hard to believe that belichick would just completely go away from that at this point uh, just based off of the confidence that nick folk has developed in in him and himself over the last couple of years all right lastly here these kick coverage specialists i i almost put cody davis in yellow too because uh, you lose brandon king you lose um brandon bolden it, it, you still need to bring in some of the old guard, right? You still need to keep some of the old guard here on these kick coverage specialists. I know this position group in particular, and I, I like breaking it up like this because Matthew Slater is not a wide receiver. Uh, Justin Bethel is probably right. the closest thing to a corner. Like Justin Bethel actually say, plays in corner. He might be in that cornerback. Yeah. He might end up being in that cornerback conversation when it's all said and done. Yeah, yeah. So he, he he's probably the closest thing to actually being listed in a, in a different position. But this group... I think it drives some people nuts that they pay this much money for these, these three players, but this is a situation uh, this is what the Patriots do as we know. And I think they have to hope that this group brings on better uh, play on special teams than what we saw last year. Yeah, no, you need improvement there. I honestly think Davis is a roster lock. I really do. Uh, yeah. Just, I almost put him in yellow. PFF, yeah. PFF had him as the highest graded kick coverage player last year. He had one bad game. I think it was the Colts game. Besides that, I thought he looked pretty good. You're right, though. They they need a boost from this group. They certainly do. They can't have a special teams performance like they had last year. All right, so that's the defensive side of the football. A nice pace to that one. I'm really, I'm really. Although you don't, that. you you you're just gonna leave out Joe Cardona. Oh no, you have him in there. You've been there. You don't have the other. Yeah, one. I have him there. 
Yeah, I need to add the other long writer. Is it Robert Writer? I remember his last name's Writer. Yeah, yeah. One one slipped through the cracks there. Okay, so that does it for the defensive side of the football, and uh, that's the roster as of right now. The Patriots have eighty-five players, I believe, is what the count is right now on their ninety-man roster. They got some open roster spots. Uh, we'll continue to monitor whether or not uh, they fill those spots. There are still some veterans out there. You look at especially names you know type of veterans, right? There, There's a lot of guys out there that can play. Obviously, I think the biggest one around here is Trey Flowers, who's still a free agent. He could potentially come back to the Patriots as, a, as an unrestricted free agent. But you look down the list of the still available free agents, there's definitely guys that can still play. I do also wonder, and, you know, they've talked up this young linebacker group so much that maybe not, but are they holding a roster spot for Dante Hightower just in case? I say no. I do think that they're well, trying to move on there, but it's possible so, that they hang on. are sort of holding on to one. Yeah. Gerard Mayo, this was kind of a throwaway line, but was asked about, this was on Monday, was asked yeah. about Juwan Bentley as a leader and in, in kind of the, the core. And he said, it's tough when you've lost guys like, and he included a couple, he included Patrick Chung, um, some other players, Kyle Vanoy, but he did include Hightower. When he yeah. said that, so maybe he knows something. Maybe it was so just he, he's not in the room right now, and it's that simple. Right. But maybe I, I, I would bet Gerard Mayo would be one of, if not the first person from the Patriots to know if Dante Hightower is going to hang him up. Those two are close; they played together. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if Gerard Mayo maybe knew something and let something slip there. Based off of everything that they have told us so far this offseason, and granted the information that comes out of that building always has to come with a grain of salt and isn't always the most fruitful, but they've been talking up Cam McGrone so much. They've been talking up getting faster, getting younger, passing the torch so often that I feel like now it would almost be disingenuous for them to then go ahead and bring Hightower back and have him play 70% of the snap, so. right? Well, the second part, I don't think it would be disingenuous to have him back. He's a good leader. I think he could still give right, you something. Right, right. That, maybe as an edge rusher, right? I, I Maybe he replaced Kyle Vannoy. I, I, I think he could still give them something. It wouldn't be the same role he's traditionally had. But I, I right. actually am not. I know Patriots fans or some Patriots fans that don't want to see him back. And it sucks that, by the way, Patriots fans like seemingly yeah. hate this guy now when he's yeah. one of the best linebackers, might be the best we're going to tip it as an outside guy, right? Maybe the best yeah. middle linebacker in the history of the Patriots. I I don't think that, you know, for the right price, it would be the worst idea in the world to bring him back. Again, in a new role, a more limited role, but I wouldn't hate seeing him back here. No, and I think what I more meant was the second part, right, where they bring him back and then all of a sudden right. he's an yeah. every-down player again. No, that would be, be disingenuous. Right, but if he's going to come in and be basically like a, a captain and and sort of a leader of that room – but play more on just first down, essentially, right? Or right. in maybe short yardage situations, goal line, third and one, fourth and one, uh, then that might be something different. But if he's going to come back and play any sort of significant role, that's not really what we've been given from the coaching staff and, and from Macro over the last couple of months. So I'd be pretty surprised if that's the plan. And Gerard Mayo has talked about it. I know the line you're talking about. He has basically talked about the situation like, like uh, excuse me, uh, Dante Hightower is is not going to be here, right? Like he's talking right. about it like that is not a door that is still open. So uh, we'll see what ends up happening there, but it's definitely interesting uh, to see how that linebacker room turns over. We got we got a minute for the Boston Sports Minute. We got to do one, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, big game right. tonight. 
All right. So Boston Sportsman, time to wrap up the show, Alex. Should we pour one out for the Bruins first or should we just talk about the Celtics? Do we do they deserve it? It's the same crap every year. The yeah. star and look, Marshawn had a good series. Bergeron was fine, but they got nothing from Pasternak. Uh, I get McAvoy was hurt, but you know, I thought when he was on the ice, he didn't do a ton. A Lindholm, I think, left something to be desired. The stars disappeared. The depth players didn't show up at all. They were all negatives, and they got nothing on the power play. It's the same thing that does the Bruins in in the playoffs every single year. I'm proud of myself. Last year, I said I wouldn't fall for it again. I didn't fall yeah. for it this year. But, man, if they get something, if they get something from David Pasternak in that series, they probably win it. Or something yeah. from the power play. Or if if anybody, Charlie Coyle. Um, Taylor Hall. If any, no, any no Taylor Hall, series. if any of those secondary scores yeah. give them something, they probably, it was really right there for the taking. I thought Swayman was actually pretty good. That was, you know, if you want yeah. a positive takeaway from that series. Swayman, I think, that's the last box he checked. He held his own. He feels like the real deal. But. Same thing every single year with this team. And hope, I mean, we'll see. It, it sucks because this could really be the end of an era. And it sucks Patrice Bergeron's going to go out, what is it, 10 straight, 11 straight years without a cup. Yeah. Uh, I felt like he won kind of the end of an era there, but different years, same crap, man. Out of all the Boston sports teams, even in the Red Sox included in that dumpster fire, I kind of feel like the Bruins are in the toughest spot right now because they kind of have their foot in each door. And I don't really know. Right. I, I, they're in a very a situation that I don't want to even be in. Like I, I wouldn't want to be Don Sweeney right now and, and, uh, and Bruce Cassidy, because where, where, what do you do? Like, where do you go from here? I think the number one thing that concerns me about the Bruins from a big picture sense is that Charlie and Jeremy Jacobs, I think were actually probably looked at this season as a success. They were an yep. exciting team. They made the playoffs. They got the the uh, playoff checkbook, right? They got the uh, the concession stands and the ticket sales for the three playoff games at home. And they were competitive and they were a fun team to watch. They kept the fans engaged all year long. That, I think, is more what they're looking for in that that clubhouse than championships, than banners. And that that's broken in Boston. Like, that's not how we view things here in Boston. So it's going to be interesting to see because the Bruins, on paper, if they run this back, and they just go about their business and they add another, you know, third line winger like they do every off season. And uh, they go ahead and they just do the exact same thing. They're probably going to be in a playoff team again next year. We're going to be in the exact same position. We're going to be on May 17th talking about the Bruins season ending after round one, right? Like we're going to be in the exact same spot yeah. as we are in now. And I just don't think the ownership cares. I think that they're fine with that. And that's a problem that, that I think is the biggest problem with the Bruins moving forward they're not, I, I didn't think that they need to fire anybody or anything like that, but they do need to decide directionally where they're going. Like, are, are they keeping Bergeron and Marshawn and Pasta and that whole core together and going for a cup again with this group? Because they truly believe this group can get over the hump and get back to the Stanley Cup finals. Or are they looking at it from a longer picture, bigger picture sense and saying, we need to start turning this roster over? Uh, it's a tough spot to be in. I, I don't know what call to make because I think both there's are really good arguments for both sides of it. Oh, well, I, I think you, I, I think you'll wait. It's up to Patrice Bergeron if, to make, yeah. you know, you don't shove him out the door, but if he's willing to hang him up, uh, I think you hold on to 
Marshawn, Posse, you just signed Lindholm and Swayman. I think anybody else you look to move. And I'm not saying they need to totally. They're keeping McAvoy. They're keeping Charlie McAvoy. McAvoy. Correct. Correct. Sorry. I don't think you need to totally tank, but I think you need a reset season. You need a lottery season. You need to just kind of reset the books, see if you can somehow move Olmark. And you know what? If you miss the playoffs one year, so be it. And then you come back next year and you have a chance to reload. Basically what the Patriots did in 2020. Um, right. Or, you know, what the Celtics did post big three. I think you kind of just need that reset year. Even the Red Sox in 20, like these teams have those years. It ha- uh, You don't get the off revenue those seasons and that maybe, you know, hurts the chances. But if Bergeron's going to walk out the door, I think you need the reset. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I one last thing I'll say on the Bruins. I do think that there is some appeal to coming to play hockey here. A lot of appeal. Oh, actually, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I know Hampus Lindholm is not, you know, Sidney Crosby or something like that, some like huge name in hockey, but he clearly saw it from the outside looking in. And I do think that this young core that they have together with McAvoy, with Lindholm, uh, with Pasta and uh, Taylor Hall and some of these other players, Charlie Coyle, Swayman, I do think that they can attract a, a real top line center if Patrice Bergeron is going to hang it up in free agency via trade, whichever direction they have to go in to get that player. I don't think that it's a complete lost cause of them being able to attract a player that's got some star power to come play hockey here uh, in with, with the Bruins. I think that this culture here and the fan base is attractive to play players in that league. Like more so I say that because right. I mean like more so than in some other places, like in some other sports teams in this town. Like I think the Bruins do have some appeal uh, for players to come in and, and play uh, here in Boston. All right, Celtics, uh, let's get to some positives here. Is that game seven? You're texting me after the first quarter telling me it's all my fault that they're going to choke on their home court in game seven. I will admit to you, first quarter had me really worried. I, I was really concerned. That looked a lot like a first quarter that Milwaukee obviously loved with the threes not going in and Grant Williams and Derek White and Daniel Tice chucking up threes. They were perfectly content with that. Celtics looked a little bit tight. I'd, I didn't necessarily see the blowout coming, but uh, as soon as that ended like that at the end of the second half, or first half, excuse me, with a foul on Giannis and things like that, that, that started to turn things around a little bit there for the Celtics. But what a second half they put together. And now it, it feels like it would almost be a disappointment. I think it would be a disappointment, honestly if they didn't make the finals, like it feels like they should beat the Miami heat, even though they don't have home court. It does. And I'll, I'll tell you where that whole game turned. Obviously I think that that foul at the end of the half by Giannis was a dumb foul, but yeah, the real pivotal moment in that game to me was seven and change to go in the third quarter. Right. And Tatum picks up. Was it his fifth foul? Was his fourth or fifth foul fourth. there? I think it was his fourth fifth. Foul. fourth. I think so, Tatum yeah. picks up his whatever it was an inordinate amount of fouls midway through the third quarter. And they basically had to take him out for the rest of the quarter. And it was a 10 point game yeah. when Tatum came out and it felt like that was when Milwaukee was going to have a chance to come back. Right. That yeah. was when Milwaukee was going to have a chance to take him off the floor to get this thing close, take the energy out of the building and, and narrow the gap heading into the fourth quarter. Instead, the Celtics increased their lead by six over the next seven and a half minutes leading into the fourth quarter. I, I tweeted when when Tatum checked out, it was the biggest seven and a half minutes of Jalen Brown's NBA career. And he played well, but you saw Grant Williams hit some big shots in that span. Peyton uh, Pritchard. White hit a big shot, shot in that span. Peyton Pritchard towards the end of the quarter there yeah. in the third hit a big shot in that span. That to me, I, that was it. And once that seven and a half minute stretch ended, 
that told me this Celtics team was different. That was adversity. That was, they didn't have the momentum. They couldn't front run, even yeah. though they were up 10, all of that. And they extended the lead. That was the biggest stretch of the game. It was the biggest stretch of the series. I would argue to the, to this point is the biggest seven minutes of the Celtics season. And, and that is why, you know, I just said with the Bruins, the same thing every year. I'm not falling for it anymore. That's why I feel like this Celtics team is different. Those seven yeah. and a half minutes go a lot differently in years past. I love the way they handle that. And then, by the way, too, the flip side of that, they're up 16, which you think they're up 16 going to the fourth quarter. Great. They had blown a 14-point lead with 10 minutes to go earlier in the series. A lot of people right. like you're up 16, leave Jason Tatum on the bench, don't want to pick up another foul, whatever. No. Ime Udoka put Jason Tatum right back in the game at the start of the fourth quarter. He wanted to end that then in there. They knew if they got yeah. one big run to start the fourth, that was it. He put Tatum in. They got the run. Tatum hit some big shots in that run. That was excellent. They was coaching to win. It wasn't coaching afraid to lose. I thought that was a great, great moment from Udoka. That whole sequence, the last half, the third, and the beginning of the fourth, that told me so many things about the Celtics team. So many questions we've had about this organization for three or four years now, I think were answered in the right way. I love that stretch, and that's why I believe in this team. Yeah, when I uh, when that fourth quarter started and Jason Tatum was in the game, a guy sitting next to me was like, they put Tatum back and he's going to foul out. I was like, no, 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 they're going for the jugular. Like, this is great, yeah. right? Like, they're they're trying to snap, snap the neck right now. Like, this is exactly what they should be doing. Who cares if he fouls out if there's 25-point lead with three minutes to go? It's not going to matter, right? Exactly. It's not going to matter that he's going to foul out. So, really love that move as well. That was fantastic. Great game, great atmosphere. The Garden was absolutely rocking. I'm sure we'll be uh, rocking for the three games in the Eastern Conference Finals. Definitely is a little bit worrisome that Marcus Smart has a Liz Frank injury, minor foot thing going on. That's going to be a little bit uh, touch and go there, I think, this series for Marcus Smart. But the last thing I'll say on the Celtics, I think what you learned in that series is something that they can carry forward to this Miami series, especially since Miami seems to be like, they're going to be out with, uh, without Kyle Lowry. The longer these series last, the better it is for the Celtics, it seems like, if they do get into these yep. six or seven game series. They are so deep compared to some of these other teams. And I know that a lot of people, you know, kind of make fun of like the Pritchards and, the, and those guys of the world. But the Celtics, like eighth and ninth guys are playable in these playoff series. And we saw it at the end of that Milwaukee series. Giannis was cooked like Giannis was gassed by the second half of that game seven they can do the same thing I think to Miami I don't think Miami is as deep as Boston is either I think that's the way the Celtics got to play this uh moving forward because they're not gonna I, I don't think they're gonna sweep anybody right like I don't think they're gonna sweep Miami they're not gonna sweep whoever they play if they do make it to the finals but they can win the marathon against those teams because they really do have a deep bench and they have a lot of guys that they can uh, that can score I think a lot of these other teams you know, Milwaukee, uh, Miami to a degree with Jimmy Butler, uh, Ma the Mavs certainly with Luka. It's like one guy, like it's one or two guys. With the Bucks, it was Giannis. With the Nets, it was Kyrie and KD. The right. Celtics have like four or five guys that can score 20 points on any, any given night. They got to win with that depth. And I, I do think that they have that ability uh, to do so. So I'm looking forward to this Miami series. I love the angle of avenging all of the last three playoff exits, right? Miami is sort of the last box to check the last one uh to uh cross out there uh, for the celtics and it's going to be fun times i think uh for the celtics over the next two weeks I, I like them in this series they're the better team they should win this series and uh, i think they will so i think we're both on the celtics which maybe is a little scary 
I got Celtics in six. Yeah. I think Miami wins tonight, and then the Celtics take four or five. That's how I have it. So I have so. Uh, we have we have tickets to game three and we have tickets to game six. So if Celtics in six, I'll be at the the closer going going to go. the final. I like that. That that would be a lot of fun. So I uh, I'll be, I'll be I'll there, there too. I'm covering for uh, for ninety eight five thesportshubcom I'm going to be like doing what I do for the Patriots, but for the Celtics. So we'll. Have oh, nice. Quick All right. So I'll, be, I'll be there Saturday night. So you'll you'll have to come down and say okay. hello. All right. Quick Red Sox Sounds thought good. if I can. Go for it. All right. Pete Abraham, this is while we were doing the show, quote, oh, spoke no. to Scott Boris this afternoon. He said definitively that any negotiations with Xander Bogarts would wait until after the season. And he looks forward to talking to the Red Sox about a, quote, championship proven player. Scott Boris, I hate Scott Boris so much. I hate Scott Boris so much. Xander Bogarts wants to be a Boston Red Sox. Scott Boris yeah. is mad. He's not getting a big enough commission on the player. And he's going to essentially hold him hostage. That sucks. That really yeah. sucks. Why are we dump on the Red Sox for? That's obnoxious. Does Xander Bogarts deserve $30 million, $35 million a year? Absolutely. If he wants to play in Boston for 25 should he be able to? Absolutely. Get Boris the hell out of the room. You know, what, what did Kraft say when they were trying to fix the lockout in, in 2011? Sometimes you got to get all the lawyers out of the room and just talk. I say this coming from a family of lawyers. That is true. Just get the negotiators out. Let everybody get what they want. So, so I think one angle of this, that being I, said, heard, the Red Sox are still a mess, but yeah, I, I've heard Xander. And, talk and, about oh, this did too. you see, hang on. Did you see what's going on with the penguins, by the way? I very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So Malkin and Latang were penguins, second, third best players behind Sidney Crosby are both pending free agents. And apparently the penguins front office and John Henry owns the penguins. Now lowballed them. Like fifteen yeah. million dollars each. Does that sound familiar at all? Does it sound familiar to anybody? I, you know, and I, relative to their sports, in, in Latang and Malkin are good players. They're both a little bit older. Neither of them is yeah. a star on the team. Devers is worth more to the Red Sox than either of those guys are to the Penguins. So it's not a great sign for Raphael Devers, by the way. That that Red Sox ownership is now short shortchanging. Sidney Crosby's Robin. Yeah, not great. And uh, the only thing I was going to say about Xander, he said this before. Um, I feel like I'm like a, a, a dual citizen of Aruba for my family going down there all the time over the years. As much as I am very much pro player. Like I think players should go out there and cash out and make all the money in the world. Like they, they deserve it and they should go out there and do it. But coming from an Island like Aruba, like, $25 million to Xander Bogarts is like probably enough for him to live like 10 lifetimes. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's really truly where he comes from is I think he appreciates that he's been with the Red Sox this whole time. The Red Sox brought him up. The Red Sox discovered him, so to speak, and brought him along and all those types of things. And I don't think that the $300 million contract means anything to Xander because Xander has lived on an Island that quite frankly, people don't make a whole lot of money down there. Right. Like, so I, I don't think that he is one of these people that's obsessed with the money. It's unfortunate that he has an agent who is obsessed with the money. Right. And that the agent is the one that's pulling right. him to be greedy and pulling him towards the other side of it, because it's taken away so much of Xander Bogarts that this is not a guy that's money hungry. That's greedy. That's all about the bottom line. Like he understands the bigger picture and he understands that life is bigger than just a paycheck. And I, I, 
Again, I'm pro player. I hope he makes as much money in his pro career as he absolutely can. Uh, but he's already made enough money for himself, I'm sure, uh, than any, any more, way more money than he ever could have imagined ever making, I'm sure, in his life, as any of us, really. So I hope they keep Xander Bogarts. I hope they do the right thing. And I hope Scott Boris doesn't turn him into one of those guys, right? Like, I hope that Scott Boris doesn't drag him down with Scott Boris into the, into the lawyer universe, as you put it, Alex. So that's your Boston Sports Minute. And uh, tonight, Celtics Heat is on at, uh, what, like 11.45 or something like that, Alex? Or what does it start? 8.45? Yeah, 8, 8.45 starts. So it's going to be a late night. I, I can't. That, I won't go on to rant about that tonight. Maybe I'll save that for Thursday when I'm like half asleep because I stayed up until 3 o'clock in the morning because of this game tonight. I, I can't believe that. That has got to be – this is later than like Sunday night football, right? Like this is 15 minutes later than that. Yeah an absolute joke that they're starting this series and every game of the series I'm going on Saturday night for game three. Like I mentioned, that's an eight 30 tip too. Can I give you a bigger joke? Can I give you a better, bigger joke than that? What they, so like the game starts at eight 30, right? The home games are eight 40 or whatever it is. Yeah. T's still shutting off at midnight. Yeah. Good luck getting home. Uber's yeah. 200 bucks in the city of Boston. Right. Can we run the T right. until the end of games, please? Is that too much to ask? Yeah. Parents. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Like on a Saturday night, like why does that game need to be at eight 30 on a Saturday? You, you play that game at five o'clock, right? Like that's like a, that's everybody's going to watch it right. no matter what. Right. It's a Saturday. Nobody's doing anything else, especially sports fans are all going to watch the Eastern conference finals game. Doesn't need to be at eight 30 at night. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So and it's going to be some be, late night. 91 on Saturday. So that building's just going to heat right. up all day. That's going to be, that's going to be some old school stuff right there. It was hot on People Sunday. People got all day to drink. Yeah, you saw them, I'm sure, on TV, like, cleaning up the court every single time down. Yeah. It was yeah. super hot in there on Sunday, like, really, really they, humid. They might have Go melted ahead. the ice, not the Bruins season's over. So that might not so be I, a I, problem. But. I, I mentioned to my dad that I didn't know if the ice was still there or not. Maybe that was something that was a factor. But even, like, going into, like, the con- the concourse area or the bathrooms, like, it was like a skating rink because of how much – you know, uh, moisture was on the floor because of the, of the humidity in the building. So it was already hot in there on Sunday. I can only imagine on Saturday how hot it's going to be unless they really crank the AC in there all day long. So it'll be interesting to see if that's a factor. I think it could be, it's going to be really hot. It's going to be really humid. Um, Remember the LeBron game? What was that? The cramps game, like against the Spurs, I think 2011 or something like that. I, I could see, or 2012, I could see that being a factor. And, and on Saturday night in this series, uh, really, really hot in Boston. But yeah, end of ran about 8.30 tip off. Please give me a break. That's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. But that's not, not here nor there. All right. So let's wrap this up. Uh, Thursday, we will do a Q&A, live Q&A edition of Patriot Speed on Thursday afternoon around the same time, four or five o'clock. And uh, we'll talk about game one and do the Boston Sports Minute again and all that kind of stuff about the Celtics and have a good time with that. So until then, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. We'll see everybody Thursday. Thanks for watching. Go Seeds.